Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. Hey guys, it's it's Davido. Um, I'm just coming here to say uh, that I love the Fallout app, and I would like to tell you about the service that they use to make this podcast. It's called Anchor. The best thing about Anchor is it's free. You don't have to pay anything. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. Now, you can even add songs from Spotify directly to the episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So you're going to be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can now make money for your podcast with very little, uh, minimum, little, little, little listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks, guys. Your attention, please. Your attention, please. This is your official civil defense broadcaster. One of the greatest threats would be radioactive fallout. Uranium fever. Where fallout is heaviest, it can even kill those who have not taken proper shelter. Broadcasting deep underground in a questionably constructed survivalist bunker is Dave Chaffins and Kenneth Vigue, and your host as always, Mr. Robots. This episode of the Fallout Hub is brought to you by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Open enrollment for advanced robotics courses starts now. Totally nothing sketchy going on. Nope, not at all. Uh, welcome everybody. Uh, this is, this is going to be the last main stage show that we're doing here for Fallout for Hope. $15,783.75 raised for the American Heart Association this last week, uh, which is just absolutely insane. That's 157 trees that the AHA will be putting in, uh, inner cities. This is still going through tomorrow, but tonight we have uh, a little bit of a surprise, um, an incredibly, incredibly special guest, someone that we've always wanted to geek out with and have never had a chance to is here, uh, Nate Perkypile. And uh, with me, as always, is Mr. Robots. Mr. Mr. Robots. Mr. Robots. Mr. Robots to you. Everyone else is just... <laughs> um, yeah, this is exciting. Uh, so this is, this is going to go up as an episode of the Fallout Hub slash Fallout Lorecast? Yes, so sir. This will be up on another feed so if you don't catch the whole thing you can check it out in both of those locations nate we are super excited to have you this is awesome this is awesome for us we are big fans of your work um there what was it a few weeks ago you shared a whole bunch of your stuff online on on twitter and man like awesome awesome stuff can you share a little bit about that we're Real quick, we're going to do a little intro thing. We're going to do the Robots Dozen warm-up questions, and then we're going to get to the official interview stuff. But just so people, if people don't know who you are, can you just give them a little elevator pitch about who you are and, and what you do? Sure, yeah. I've been in the games industry about 17 years, but the last 14 of those years were all at Bethesda. 
So I've been there a long, long, or was there a long, long time and was the lead artist on Fallout 76 as the last big thing. Yeah, and you've done a ton of work. A lot of the stuff that we play in that game and a lot of other, these other games that we absolutely love are uh, in some ways your brain chi- brain children, I guess we should say, or um, you, you worked or had a hand in it in some ways working with some of the other artists or your own your own concoctions, your own designs and things like that. Um, so we're big fans of your work. But uh, as we normally do when we have a guest on the Fallout Hub, we like to open this up with the Robots Dozen questions. These are just some warm up questions. These are off the wall bonkers questions that you can just answer however you want. Don't overthink them. Just spit out the first thing that comes to mind. And we're just going to move from one question to the next. We'll get through these real relatively quickly. And don't worry, because we will absolutely judge you based on your answer. So here we go. Um, question num- <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> question number one. None of these are Freudian in any way. Uh, so this is probably the longest question in the group. One day you're out walking when a crazy looking old man approaches you and says, It's you. I was meant to give you this. Use it wisely and hands you a dollar bill from the year of your birth with your mother's name written on it in ink. He disappears before you can ask more. What do you do? Go spend it. <laughs> what what okay, on what? What do you what do you buy with it? Chips chips that is that is the correct answer congratulations the correct answer is always chips the question correct answer is chips when in doubt buy a bag of chips that's what i always say question two what is the sum of orange and rectangle an orange rectangle (laughs) that's a valid answer yes a valid answer all right question number three which of us between me and ken uh, seems most likely to know how to tap dance. I go with you. Me? <laughs> I'm the I'm the tap dancer of the group. Yeah. Congratulations. You've been known to lay down well. a few. I I can I can do some jazz steps. That's that, that is absolutely true. Uh, question number four: What creature in Fallout would you ride like a horse? <laughs> Snallygaster. Yes, that would I be think funny. the Snallygaster. That's, yes, yes. Every time you get one right, I'm I'm doing a woohoo. All right, that's yeah. I, I would it would be a very gross, probably stinky ride, but oh, for sure. That, yeah, yeah. I don't think uh, it brushes those teeth. Yeah, and I don't know how you put a saddle on there without accidentally covering up one of those weird eyes that's just kind of like all over its back and that makes me. You're welcome. Really yeah, thank you. All right, the question number five. Where do you go where everybody knows your name? Like the Cheers Bar. All right, there you go. Hey. The Cheers Bar. Congratulations. That, I was that sad when that closed. closed in Boston. Oh, I didn't realize it closed. Yeah, it's uh, it's gone now because of COVID. It's permanently closed. Bummer. Freaking COVID. Killing all our childhood memories. Uh, okay, number six. If you were a dog, would you wear a sweater? Nah. No? No. Yeah, fur. What's, what do you need a sweater for? Yeah. All right. So here's here's another question. Our friend Dave does the Fallout Hub with us as well, and he will potentially be joining us later, or, or maybe after I leave, because I have to go do another show. But um, if Dave gives you a haunted doll and tells you to put it somewhere safe that nobody will ever find it, but it will not be harmed. Where do you put it? It won't be harmed or I won't be harmed. It won't be harmed. 
I mean, it's a haunted doll. I've watched Supernatural. I'm going to burn it. That's what you got to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's, that is absolutely right. You do not follow the instructions and you burn it right away. Very good. Right. Uh, put some salt on it and burn it. Yes. Perfect. Question number eight. How many super mutants does it take to screw in a light bulb? I think they can. Maybe <laughs> one of the smart ones, but most of them, like... You'd just be infesting the whole place with super mutants then. <laughs> no, no amount is good. Good enough to screw in a light bulb. You are correct. All right, number nine. Who is the most talented person you know that isn't famous? It's got to think of this one. A real stumper. Yeah, uh, maybe Ilya Nazarov. He's a concept artist at Bethesda. Okay. He has done tons of stuff, and he's also super fast. Is there is there something specific he's done that we would have like recognized? You can, I know this is just kind of off the cuff. You're probably going, okay, what things did he work on? But <laughs> a ton. Uh, the cat paintings he did those, so you oh, might nice. recognize this kitty yeah. from the cat paintings. Yeah, that cat looks really irritated to be held up to the camera. <laughs> like son of a <laughs> that death me stare. Yeah, put me back in the lab. Uh, we're almost done. Question ten. You're a movie director choosing music for an ironic romance scene. You must choose a song that clashes with the mood of the scene. What do you choose? Death metal. Is there a specific song that you would pick? It's a cannibal corpse, maybe. Yeah. While they're like, ooh, baby, baby. Glug, 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 glug. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Question number 11. You discover irrefutable evidence that you are a synth with the memories and personality of Danny DeVito. <laughs> Danny DeVito is still very much alive. Do you murder him and take his place? No, I just go star in other shows. See if anyone notices. <laughs> Do you go by the same name? He starts two. Yeah. Danny DeVito Danny two. DeVito two. <laughs> the sequel. Oh, oh man. man, too bad Dave wasn't here for that question. All right, number 12. Why not two thumbs? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. I saw a robot second thumb thing, actually, that like attaches to your hand, so seems cool. <laughs> seemed very useful. You got a perfect score. Congratulations. And... Uh, unbeknownst to many of our guests, this robot doesn't also counts as a, a goat. And so we have determined that your, um, let's see, I got to hold on. I got to put this into the system. Random, Crunch those numbers. Okay. Crunch these numbers. Okay. Nice we've, determined, we've determined that your, uh, your perfect job is a fruit vendor. Congratulations. Sounds fun. It's okay. respectable work in the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll be serving on demand a high price. So here's a question, though: Is a tato a fruit? Isn't it a vegetable? Is it a vegetable? But okay, so oh, yeah. isn't it like a combination of potatoes and tomatoes together? Fruit. Right. Right. Okay. So, but tomatoes are technically fruit that we treat like vegetables, and potatoes are like roots. Yeah, root vegetables. So it's vegetables. a fredgetable. It's a fredgetable. Okay, so you're a ta- you're a tato vendor. <laughs> there you go. I like it. Very cool. Before, oh, congratulations! Uh, that was that was awesome. 
Before we hop in here, I did want to remind everybody, uh, if you hit the hashtag perky, that's turkey but with a P, um, Shia, who's... Uh, Definitely never heard that. I apologize, but it's the easiest way to get people to spell it correctly. <laughs> um, that's fine. It, uh, yep, there you go. Uh, Shia, who's in chat, who's, who said to say hello to you, um, she is going to be giving away two ink drawings tonight, so make sure to enter that. So hashtag Perky. I'm going to do a drawing here at the end of the interview. I love I love Shia's work. I've been yeah, so uh, combing Shia's work. One of the one of the uh, goals that we had set on the Fallout Lorecast Patreon was to hit regularly more than five hundred dollars a month, which we've we've done for a few months. In order, uh, and if we pass that goal, I would get a tattoo. So I want to get like a fallout tattoo and I've been combing through Shia's work to figure out if there's any of those that I could put on my shoulder and make it look really cool. So I love Shia's work. Uh, awesome stuff. So go go get yourself one of those um, pieces of work. Uh, there's like Modus and what was the other one? Modus and then um, some of the uh, Scorched. Yeah. Crystals and all. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. I, I love Shia's style. Very, very cool. Yeah, stuff. Shia's stuff is great. Well, guys, I have to head out. I've got another show I've got to launch. I wish I could stay. Uh, but we've got uh, Cyberpunk Lorecast and Mass Effect Lorecast patron episodes tonight that'll be done on my channel. But you guys stay here. Listen to what Nate has to say. He's got awesome stuff, and I'm going to be definitely be listening to this later as, as well. Um, but thank you for, for being here, Nate, and uh, Ken for setting this up. I'll see you guys later. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's good talking to you. Yep. Yeah. Let me turn. Here we go. Right. And then there were two. Um, you started making uh, video games back in third grade, I'd read. Um, what what was that first game? <laughs> you remember? I don't know if I even remember the specific one, but I know I made like tons of these just like terrible text adventures on old Apple II computers. Oh, yeah. Lost to time, probably, thankfully. Yeah, I fondly remember I made a, a Doctor Who role-playing game on my T83 calculator <laughs> in algebra class. Yeah, my teachers didn't like me doing that also, because I would do the same thing on the calculator. Yeah, math was not yeah. my forte. <laughs> what uh, what games were you playing back then? What did you What did you really start with? I mean, back then I was mostly playing like Nintendo games, so I always like, go rent different games from the video store and play all kinds of stuff what um so you you started playing games you really started enjoying them when when did you make the decision that this is something i want to do for a lifetime great (laughs) so at the same time i was like yeah this is awesome i'm just gonna keep doing this and i just never changed my mind you know some people are like i want to be a fireman not me oh did uh Back then, when you were when you had that vision in your head, were there any were there any gamers or developers, people in the industry that you looked to back then? You thought, you know what, I could be that person. I'm trying to think of who the who the celebrities would even be for that period. That would be. I don't think that was really a thing for me until like the Doom era. Id Software and everyone there, like Carmack and Romero, like I really looked up to them and loved those games. Yeah. But before then, I don't think I even really knew who was making the games because you would just get like Nintendo Power every once in a while and didn't have that kind of exposure to who was doing it. Yeah, back then it was more about the it was more of a focus on the the end product than really the people behind the scenes. 
But I think then again, yeah. we've come so far in terms of artistry and what you could do now versus like the original Super Mario Brothers game. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then you you'd went on to do uh, art and game design in college. Um, how did you how did you find the right college to go to for that? So initially, I went to a different one. Actually, I went to the Academy of Art for about a year. But you know, I always wanted to do games, but they were really fine arts focused. So eventually, I left that. I spent about a year just working on Half Life mods instead, and then I applied to Digipen because they are basically focused just on games, and that ended up being a great choice. And I'm really glad I went there. The uh, yeah, it was the you were the project leader on Desert Crisis, which was a mod for for Half Life. How did you how did you get involved in that project? Did you play a lot of Half Life, and it just kind of organically happened? Yeah, that's pretty much why I got Half-Life in the first place. Is like, first off, it was an awesome game, but I also wanted to make a mod for it. So I started this project with a few friends from school and then slowly found other people on the internet and grew from there and worked on it for years. What, uh, do you ever still go back and, and play it? Every like once in a while, yeah. There's like events that show up now and again on Steam where there's a whole group that still plays it every once in a while. And it's, it's a lot of fun. That's going to be a little weird to go back to, to stuff that you did so long ago. Is it a little nostalgic, or do you get in your head and think, I could have done this a little different knowing what I know now? I think it's mostly nostalgic. Like, I know I could probably do it better now and all that, but it was a really fun game to work on, and I still enjoy the combat of it, because you're, like, jumping off of walls and throwing sledgehammers at people and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then... Um, so games that you worked on even before Bethesda, so you worked on Blood Rain 2, uh, Eon Flux, um, which I used to watch at the wee hours of the morning <laughs> that cartoon was on, uh, Metroid Prime 3 Corruption. Um, what do you remember most about those those early games that you did? Um, and what did you do for them? Oh, for all of those, I did World Art and Lighting, because that's always been my focus. But I think the thing I remember the most was Terminal Reality was this studio full of super talented people, but it did a lot of crunch and stuff like that. So everyone ended up leaving. But from that studio, if you go to any major studio now, there's always someone from Terminal Reality. Naughty Dog, Valve, they're all over the place. It was like this incubator. So that was really cool. And Metroid Prime was very, very different from that because Nintendo games, everything is very like specifically crafted. And I would get like a whole month just for one room which is like the complete opposite of Bethesda games. <laughs> like you would be modeling every single rock and every crack by hand. So I learned a lot about how to make really good looking, interesting spaces, but also learned that I think that's a terrible way to make a game because yeah. it takes forever. Right. Like, I think there's like a middle ground there. It's like, you can do a lot of custom stuff, but maybe not every rock. That's maybe a little too far. How do you, um, how do you approach level design and animation? Um, then or even now with the games that you've worked on? I think I usually just try and think of myself as the player and what I would enjoy and what's convenient. Like one example I would go to is like Diamond City. All the shops are just like dead center in a circle and you don't have to load for all of them except for one. So because I knew players would go there all the time and I didn't want to be like, load, come out, let me run to this other side of the city and like, because I knew that would just annoy me. So I was like, yeah. let's put them all right there. They're going to do it like hundreds of times. Yeah, so that, that's the main thing I think of. 
yeah, that particular space feels like such a good centralized hub. And even layout-wise, the way in which um, you've got streets and alleys and um, you get a verticality to it, as well as when you're wandering down in there, the space feels so much bigger than it really is. Um, in the same way that maybe Megaton back in Fallout 3 had that kind of verticality where you're you're making your way around, but you obviously had a lot more to work with in uh, Fallout 4 versus 3 in terms of what you could build out in a space like that. Yeah, we were able to do a lot more with that. Spent even more time on that than any of the other cities I've worked on. So spent a lot of time thinking, if I was living in this baseball stadium, like, would I build it? Kind of built out from it for like, where's the food? Where do they put their trash? Stuff like that. Where's the bar? <laughs> exactly. That's super important. Did you, um, you did a lot of scouting for Fallout 76, but when you were doing that space, working on Diamond City, um, did you, did you do a lot of scouting in Boston in the same way that you did throughout West Virginia? Yeah. Ended up going on multiple trips there and went on like the tour of Fenway Park and stuff like that thousands of pictures probably over the course of years because it's not that far away so we would kind of make excuses to go to Boston and then not let our friends in to why we're taking so many pictures <laughs> are you guys like, thinking you moving taking... there? yeah sure yeah, in real really, like, just, why are you taking pictures of the floor? that's kind of <laughs> weird, don't worry about it I'm getting into architecture, it's fine, leave me alone where uh, where do you find inspiration um so much of, of what you do um, and what I think is really memorable about the spaces you've created is they have such a strong presence or atmosphere um, that you feel when you're when you're going into a room or Diamond City or uh, Little Lamplight or um, The Deep in Fallout 76. Those spaces have such atmosphere. Um, where do you find inspiration when you design stuff like that? A lot of it is from like travel like there's sort of a connection there with a lot of those spaces and scuba diving which i've done a lot of because they're almost like especially like black reach and little lamplight like all these sort of glowy sort of ethereal feeling spaces so that was something that was always really inspiring or just going to other places and then there's always other games movies it just depends on what it is i guess yeah i definitely got the feel when i wandered into the deep for the first time i was like am i am i in elder scrolls all of a sudden yeah, I did that one for fun on the side, and everybody liked it enough that we ended up making it part of the main quest. That entire space was such a cool feature. Um, there are parts of the map, um, like even um, got the uh, cave system, whose name escapes me now. Um, that's the tourist attraction in 76. Uh, Danny Caverns? Yes, that's the one. Um, that is such a space that's so well designed too. But unless you have a reason to go there, it's kind of one of those paces that if it's not part of a quest or a daily, you kind of go there once and then you forget to go back. But it's laid out so cool. Like that entire cave system is just amazing. Even with like the little boxes you can learn as you're going through. Yeah, I like that. That was a really good touch in that space. Here's Dave. Hello, hello, hello. Hey. How's everybody doing? Good to see everybody. Good. Good day. Nate, how are you? Thank you for coming on. Good. No problem. Even though I didn't invite you. I was invited <laughs> to this. I don't know why I'm saying thank you. Just, you know, it's like we're at the dinner party together and we just happen to be there. And I thank you for coming over to another person's dinner party. It's kind of what I just did. So I'm trying to make it less awkward. 
double down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what do you have? Um, do you have a consistent style in terms of the way that you, you design, um, like a, a particular aesthetic that maybe is consistent to your work? I think I've do sort of stuff that is, you know, I, aiming in the realistic category, but also with like those weird touches. So it looks real, but it's also absurd. Like the giant mushrooms and black reach and stuff like that. Like, I like those really extreme touches, like the crash space stations, another one. Always wanted that in fallout, but it kept on being like, no, we don't have time. No, we don't have time. Well, I'm just going to make it. So <laughs> I have time. I'm going to do it. Yeah. I feel like there's not enough. Sometimes I feel like there's not enough whimsy and, and uh, maybe not like, like post-apocalyptic whimsy, I suppose, but it's like something that's like really out there. Like is always really fun to see, you know? And like, that's, I think that's a, a hallmark of the fallout universe. It has, it's so absurd in different ways um, and whimsical in the way that when you think of like 1950s sci-fi into the early 1960s, it's all very ridiculous. It's robots and flying cars and, you know, mutated floating brains. And we kind of, we've had the total gambit of that throughout the years in fallout. And that's why I like that franchise is because you can do all those things within that. So even though it's like usually an IP is kind of narrow sometimes, but in this one, it's like you can do whatever you want. Yeah, you get time, time travel, whatever. Yeah. And it's like if you think about like Mad Max, like the, like the movies or something like that, there's four movies. And what's the one location that you remember if you can name one? It's going to be the Thunderdome because two go out, one go in or one two go in, one go out. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> like there's, there's not a, it's it's like a you know a desert a desert land where there's not a lot of different locations and it's like even trying to remember names of of I mean especially from like the the ones in the 80s and 90s it's like those it's like it's not very memorable but like a good well designed location like the Thunderdome I mean you you remember that you remember when they have like the you know the big guy and the little guy find each other you know. Yeah, it's a classic one. And I have a little story about the Thunderdome, actually, that I think most people probably don't know about this one. But before I was art lead on 76, I fought the previous art lead in a Thunderdome. So we went to Burning Man together, and what they have the a Thunderdome there with the, the bungees and everything, and you're swinging <laughs> around, and everyone's up on the cage. It was amazing. Only one of us will emerge. <laughs> It's like, I get to cross this off my bucket list. I just had a vision that, like, you become lead artist at Bethesda by a, a death match and <laughs> just, like, in the Let's middle of the atrium. That, yeah. That's like, how it works. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, like, great business. I mean, great. I mean, look at, I mean, upward mobility and career movement. I mean, the field is open for people if that's the case, you know. You got you literally fight your way to the top. And I mean, then you get to take out some of your frustration, you know. If I could go fight my boss in the Thunderdome and then take over his job, you know, that would be that would be ideal. I would do that. Yeah, less arguments that way. I actually I did fight I, like my, that. I did fight my boss once uh, in one of those inflatable sumo costumes. It was for a holiday party. I actually felt pretty Let's good. Let's try that. I felt pretty good by the time I was done. It was a good way to let stress out. Mm, mm. Um, speaking of 
Speaking of colleagues, so many of them uh, on LinkedIn, I was being a total creeper uh, before the interview. <laughs> I was flipping back through your LinkedIn profile. Um, and a lot of them said a lot of similar things about you um, in that you achieve a lot of quality and polish with your work under very strict timelines, uh, sometimes even less than time that you need, um, as well as your drive. Um, what, what drives you in this industry or what drives you to create? Where does that come from? I think it's just that I've always really liked games, so I'm doing everything I can to make those games and put as much stuff in as you can without spending too much time on it. Not to say, like, don't polish stuff, but, like, the thing about Bethesda games in particular, it's like, you could spend literally forever on a game like that. You just kind of have to find what's the right spot for, like, how much time to get it looking as good as possible before moving on to something else. And coffee. And hot keys. <laughs> So that's the secret. <laughs> yeah. Do you have one of those mouses at work that have like, you know, like the 24 different mouse buttons on the side and you're like, all right, this one, if I press, you know, this button, it's alt and F8. Yes, everything macroed. If I want to move, if I want to select a different cursor, it's that. I have, I have one of those two. I have one of those two. I have like a, I have a gaming mouse for like my programming job. <laughs> yeah. had one of those, like, what the, like the, the rat mouse that looks like something yes. out of like a cyberpunk. Did you have Those one at one cool. point with the big weird round red ball that had like the remember when that was a thing? It was uh, like a it was like a chonky mouse, but it had this big red ball on the side. I don't know if I saw that one. That was just me. How did you get the nickname the Phoenix? <laughs> so that was from back in my wild tangent days when I was the intern, and every week there they would have this poker game after work. So my kind of thing in poker was that I would just do terribly at first and just almost lose but then come back and like do really well like every time that was so i was the phoenix then coming back from my ashes of terrible poker playing nate's a ringer confirmed you have uh you have a really interesting mix when it comes to to skill sets so you have that technical background um in terms of modeling and animation as well as you approach the games um, from the player perspective, um, meaning that as you're creating, like you said, you 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 think in terms of if I was playing this, what would I want, or, or what would people look for? Um, what uh, and when it comes to to world design too, you bring this artistry together. Um, how has that had really helped you in your career to have that kind of skill set? I think it's helped me to like talk to other departments a lot more because some people like just focus on art and make that their specialty. But I've always been sort of this cross-discipline person. Like I didn't even actually really do art, period, until like 1999. Because before then, I was only programming and designing games. So that ended up being super helpful for putting in new tools and like redesigning the lighting system on 76 and stuff like that, or even writing my own tools. Like that's been super helpful to get stuff done faster. Writing your own tools. Yeah, I'm sure they're like, the code is terrible, but it gets the job done. Like, there's a lot of making games that is just like repetitive nonsense. So you can easily script stuff up and write stuff, you know, like Max Script and stuff like that to do it for you. Oh, that's awesome. What, like, um, go ahead. Oh, oh, go ahead. Okay, I was just going to say on Fallout 3, like, we had to do these edge trims for decals on everything because, you know, everything is ruined, but we had to do that by hand at first. So I wrote something to do it for us. And, like, that probably saved me five mm-hmm. years on that game. I don't know how we would have done it without it. 
Well, that's, uh, I remember you were talking, too, about the, the lighting system in Fallout 76, how you, you worked on creating a more dynamic lighting system, a new lighting system that um, I remember particularly when we were looking at Wastelanders at Bethesda Game Days um, and got a chance to actually sit down and play it properly. The very first thing that struck me was how how different the world looked and how much the lighting was more dynamic and the world just looked more beautiful. But in Fallout 3, you had to, to light things by hand. Yeah, which it is, wasn't until 76 that that stuff would bounce light for you. So every single like little pocket of darkness and light, if you like have sunlight coming into a room, right? You would have to then put all these extra lights to fill that room with light yourself. So that was like thousands and thousands of lights versus one. Was there, and you had to do that by hand. There was no way to describe that really because it, it, it had to be really done by the eye. God, that. Yeah. yeah. The way I would do it is I would turn off all the lights and just kind of like do it by feel. So I can't even see the lights and you're just like duplicating them and adjusting their brightness, making all these little lights spilling through doorways. <laughs> If you watch talks, they're I like, imagine, don't do it this way. I imagine it's like it's like re- rearranging your living room, and you're like, all right, put the couch over here. All right, now, <laughs> I, I I know I want the armchair in the corner, but but so let me put it there and let me see how that looks. Okay, and then like you know, four hours later, you're like, okay, I think I like this, and the next day you're like, no, this looks like crap. Take care. Time to adjust all of those again by hand. <laughs> Yeah, because it's like you you move one light and then you have to move this. Yeah, yeah, it's a ton. What uh, what was your first Fallout? What got you into the the Fallout franchise? Well, hopefully this gets me some cred, but it was the first one. I, I played the first one like way back in the day, and probably not like yeah, right when it came about. Credit <laughs> just one. You're you're gonna receive a special award. We're gonna ship it to you right now. Um, it's coming in the mail. It's All expected. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's. Uh, I never. I. I wish I'd had um, the opportunity. I got into gaming later. Uh, like we had a Nintendo, but not a PC. I mean, by the time I did, it was Doom and Quake. But I never got a chance to to really play and appreciate Fallout One and Two. Fallout Three was was my first game. Yeah, it must have been uh, interesting. That was playing those early games um what what drew you into that world was it just the the wackiness of it or or just the post-apocalyptic feel it's it's both like i've always liked that blend because i like how it's dark and serious but then also just so goofy at the same time and that was really enjoyable to me and it was always like this formative game for me and i ended up doing like my junior and senior projects in high school both on nuclear weapons which they probably thought was kind of weird what That's what, like, uh, how you would theoretically build one, or like, what kind of experiments are we talking about here, Nate? So, one was on like the history of nuclear weapons, and the other was purely on the physics of just like how the blasts work and radiation and all these things. Did you do a scale model of the school and be like, well, this is what would happen if? I'm sure they would have not liked that. <laughs> no. So in West Virginia, they have this thing called the Social Studies Fair, which is like uh, it's like for like middle schoolers and high schoolers will go and they'll, they'll present a project of 
something from social studies, but after Fallout 76 released, it was like predominantly kids doing Mothman and Flatwoods Monster because everybody was talking about them again. And normally like every year you get like one or two people doing that, but that next year it was like everybody. It was like, this is the it thing, Mothman and Flatwoods Monster. And everybody was like going crazy over it. It was funny to see the pictures from the different uh, the different displays because it's by county. And so it's like pretty much every kid will participate in it. A lot of them did that right after Fallout 76. So that's so cool. Inspire more people to do fun little you know, projects like that. That's so cool. Cryptids are the best. Yeah. You you are talking to the cryptid master over here. Send them. A few people send. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Dave, Dave did you show him your degree? I yet? have a little bit of a delay on my end. I'm sorry. Oh, Dave, I, Dave yeah, literally has a degree. cryptozoology um, degree. <laughs> So, Nate, I'm I'm a West Virginia native. Um, I'm from Charleston. Grew up in in Bluefield, which Bramwell is in the game, and I know it's in the game because there's a there's a, a terminal entry that talks about Bramwell, but it's never mentioned locations. And I knew it even when watching the trailers. Um, yeah, I mean it's basically the mega mansions on it right now. But I got a degree from yeah the mega mansions. Yeah. Um, but I got a degree from the it's from the UK it's called the um, University of Paranormal Studies I paid 50 bucks and took an exam and I have a certificate for a degree in cryptozoology you had to take a little exam and you had to like a, a lot of it now the thing is there was no questions about Mothman or Flatwoods Monster the Crafted Monster whatever it was primarily like what's a mermaid what's a kelpie What's the Loch Ness monster? So it was very UK based. So I'm not sure if I have an international degree, but I'm I have like you know you know it, it's all semantics at this point. But so like if monsters invade, yes. you, you should go to the UK to fight monsters. Is that what you're telling us? Like hop on a boat? Um, but here's the thing: I don't know. Very, <laughs> I know more about the West Virginia monsters, but I'm not sure if they've made a degree. So I think that maybe I should start my own, like you know. Like, you know how they sell, um, like, prescriptions for emotional support animals? Maybe I should do that for <laughs> West Virginia cryptozoology since I'm a degree professional already and go ahead and, and like, that's, like, a great I'm, – I'm talking about my genius small business idea right now, and I'm a little uncomfortable because this could – I mean, this could make it big for me. <laughs> Let me write this down. Yeah, I know. Nate, Nate's yeah. taking notes right now. He's starting venture capitalism firms, and he's <laughs> – Yes. Emotional yes. support cryptids. He scribbled down on a note. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that talk about a derail. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's what I'm here for. That is that is that is what people book me for. Thank you for bringing the chaos. And I and I deliver every time. I deliver every time. So uh, bring it on back now. You started as uh, as a world artist with Bethesda after interning at Wild Tangent, and you worked your way up the ladder there while over uh, 14 years, which uh, when, when you work um, at a company that long, um, like the, the last company I worked on, I was there for 11 years, um, it becomes like family there. Um, you, 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 so much of um, your personality, your, your memories, and all of that becomes really wrapped up in there. Um, but you never really forget where you started and what it was like those first years. What was it like walking in the door there and, and working on Fallout 3? It was really exciting since, you know, I'd always been a fan of the franchise and just seeing that initial demo they made where it was like this little school area that was taken over by super mutants and seeing that for the first time and 
most people in the world hadn't seen it, you know, at all at that point. I was just super excited. I was like, hell yeah, let's build this. So I was all in. And I think you'd said, too, that, that Fallout is what brought you to Bethesda. It was one of the reasons that you really wanted to be there. No way. Like, for some people, it's Elder Scrolls, but for me, it was 100% Fallout. That's awesome. It had to be trippy, too, to go from, from you know, the isometric style of Fallout 1 and 2 to fully realized 3D and a complete transformation of, of the game with that. Yeah, it was cool to see. And I, I was a little bit used to that since I'd worked on Metroid Prime 3. And that's kind of the same thing where they took those old games and transformed it. But it was fun to see what they had done with Fallout. And I really enjoyed that. I'm sure there's purists out there who just like the originals more. And that's fine. But I really enjoyed them. So what's that like going back and forth between like you're you're working on you working on art design for something in a Fallout game and then you're moving over to Skyrim and then you move back like what's is there like something that you need to rearrange your brain every time it's like okay okay Bob Ross got to channel some Bob Ross for this and then next <laughs> happy time, trees I got to channel like what's what's that process like yeah it definitely takes getting used to switching those styles after like doing all these destroyed yeah. buildings for years but <laughs> do you, does know, it feel like a breath of fresh air or are you like oh yeah for some people, but for me, like I was fine just doing all the destroyed stuff. It was awesome to me. Who who hasn't mistaken a drogger for a feral ghoul? I mean, it happens. Yeah, there's parallels there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Here's a question, quiz for you. You can only save one of these that you've made. Little Lamplight, Paradise Falls, Tenpenny Tower, or The Underworld. I think I'm going to go with a little lamplight. That's one that's really special to me, and I spent a lot of time on that one, and even took the photos myself of the caves. There's like Loray Cavern, Caverns is a cave nearby, and I took pictures there and built them into the cave kit for a little lamplight. That's awesome. Really like. So you modeled that after Loray Caverns. Yeah, that's interesting. That's cool. That's like that's like the premier spot. I grew up. I so I am from West Virginia, but I grew up in in, in Virginia. So what that means is, born in West Virginia, lived in Virginia until I was eighteen, then moved back to West Virginia. So Luray Caverns was like the premier spot for like third graders. That's like if you are going on the field trip, like that's one of the places you're going to go. You're going to get a big old scoop of ice cream. And go to Luray Caverns. So that's that's interesting. That's funny. We didn't cuss any time though. We, when we went in Luray Caverns, there wasn't a whole lot of cussing. But I know in Little Lamplight there may be. <laughs> yeah, fair amount of it. Who hasn't been sworn yeah. at by a small child before? <laughs> <laughs> Happens to the best of us. Um, you served as as lead artist um, on the Pit. What inspired the art design of that space? I think it all comes from like the blast furnace and steel and all that. So it, the whole thing has this like fire theme, and that also kind of worked with like the timeline of that project because it was like two or three months. It was incredibly fast. So it's like, what can we do to make this as unique as possible and spend time on just like those big set pieces like the blast furnace, and then just kind of recolor and change everything else beyond that to feel as different as we could. So you're really going to this new place. Yeah, so much of there are certain DLCs that to me um, that is is one of them, um, and like even in New Vegas, the Sierra Madre, um, that whole world space almost feels like a completely different game. Like the Pit as its own could could be its own game, 
Um, it's such a different world space than where we were at in DC. Everything is very urban um, and dark. And even the choices that you make there in terms of what to do with the baby. Oh, my God, that's <laughs> dark. I think there's a lot more freedom in DLC. It's like, yeah. even though the Fallout games can let you do a lot, like on a DLC, you can do even more, like, you know, aliens and all that. Yes, Mothership Zeta. Mm-hmm. I love me some Mothership Zeta. The, uh, which brings us also to DLC. You were co-project lead and artist on Point Lookout, um, which when you think about that one, the, the feel of that, when, when I first um, checked out Far Harbor with Fallout 4, it felt like I was going back to Point Pleasant. It had this same kind of dreary, like swampy atmosphere. It was oppressive and foggy. Um, the uh, that DLC, Point Lookout, and the the whole Calvert Mansion. You, your team, put that together in four months, which is just yeah. insane. That's the other nice thing about DLC. Is at that point you've spent so much time building that stuff that you can you know how to do it and you. Also, the tools all work and are stable, so you can just do stuff a lot faster than you did the rest of the time, really. So that one was a lot of fun to work on. Learned a lot about how to like lay out the world, too, which was useful for 76, for how you're like coming in to Point Lookout and you see the mansion. and All those sightlines were controlled. We like mapped out exactly where you were going from where. I mean, obviously, you can go whichever way you want, but they're sort of like yeah. the golden path. Yeah, you feel I was like- always curious when 76 came out how much it would be like... Um, Point Lookout, because Point Lookout has that like you know, rural Maryland. I mean, you know, you get outside of DC or whatever, and it's like any other rural place in Virginia or Maryland or wherever. Like you get that that kind of vibe. And I was always curious, like, it's like, okay, are we going to get that kind of vibe in '76? And some of it, yeah, but some of it, no. Like there wasn't. I think Point Lookout had like the crazy killer hillbillies, right, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was like, obviously, uh, uh, yeah. Things. <laughs> moved far away from that for 76 so that was my one yeah. worry was that that was going to happen and it, and then it didn't happen I was like oh thank god thank god yeah we had somebody like, uh, at the helm understands we had like a no hillbilly rule to try and make sure everything is like authentic as possible because I think West Virginia is like really misrepresented in a lot of media and I think it was a good opportunity to not do that like I'm still proud of Point Lookout but that's it's kind of like this pulp horror kind of thing yeah it has like oh, yeah. sort of comic booky fonts and stuff like that, and I still like that seventy six has horror elements, but it's also just like part of it. Yeah, I remember just like a little bit of Lovecraftianness, just like Far Harbor. Like Point Lookout kind of has that kind of like all you know, crazy mansion out there in the middle of the wilderness, and all there's these people in it, and there's this like thing happening. Kind of, get, I get that vibe at least. I may be, For I may sure. be entirely talking out of my butt at any point in time, but I, that's at least what I get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has the whole like Chris Beckna thing with like the ancient book, and it's totally inspired by that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah that that is very Lovecraftian. I I remember um, when we had Faradon, um and we were interviewing him. That was one of the things that that David asked him about, and he said that the team really tries to. To not misrepresent the locations that you guys create world spaces in, um, and that's a great example of uh, because Appalachia historically has really been misrepresented and painted with a really negative brush, um, even up until the 1960s and 1970s. 
um, in a lot of major media outlets, people have a particular impression of what it's like there, which is just not accurate at all. And even though I'm not from West Virginia, not only. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, even though I'm there's a little bit of a delay, so it's okay. It's okay. But I'm not from West Virginia, but I am from like rural Oregon. So I know how that is to have people have this stereotype of what your place is like. Right. And it's interesting because the not only is it like represented well, there are some like real, real deep cuts that like as like so I, I majored in geography and then had a minor in in, uh, in Appalachian studies in college. And so like I had that specialization in that thing. And there are some like like Jesco White deep cuts some like even like how you like made signs in certain towns and stuff like off of almost like it's like it's like you almost went out and took photos all of west virginia which i know that you did um that level of accuracy like people not just me that's like oh i'm i'm a super big appalachian history nerd and fought nerd like people that just picked it up and played are like holy crap that's that's where i live that's cool that they have the p they have like the prt in morgantown and they have all this like Oh, you can go see the baths in Berkeley. Like that's kind of stuff that I remember from you know growing up in these different areas. So that I think really resonated with the people around here more so than you would see you know people out elsewhere around these parts around down here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff to pull from. It's great to just go like as deep as possible to use that because I mean, it's, yeah, you have to build this whole world. So you don't have to make everything up. You can just. If you dig deep enough, there's all these interesting things like the friggin' teapot. People are like, what? There's a teapot? Like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it was funny. Farrah was talking to, uh, we were talking to him about the lighthouse. And I guess there was an internal discussion like, we can't have a lighthouse. What? And you're like, it's right here. And he's like, okay, fine. Yeah. Emil didn't believe me about that at first. He was like, this makes no sense. Why would there be a lighthouse? Like, well, ah. The, um, Stepping aside for a second to, to some of the things that you've worked on developing, um, one of the interesting things we learned um, about the GDC talks that you did with Joel Burgess was the construction of modular kits, um, which really helped you build a lot of the games that we know and love in which you um, create more unique assets that then level designers can go in and, and create something that looks a little more unique as opposed to, to cookie cutter. How did that that approach come out? Was it just something that you're like, I'm bored with this space. We need to do this better. Yeah, it's, it's like, they always build stuff modularly at Bethesda, but you know, Oblivion's a great game. Don't get me wrong, but those dungeons all kind of look the same. So the goal the whole time was like, how can we make this as flexible as possible? So all these spaces feel different. I think that got more and more complicated over time to let designers do even arbitrary walls and all the destruction in Fallout 4 where it started to get really pushed and then I thought that was really helpful. It, it takes more time to build it that way, but it's a lot more interesting that way. Yeah, but the, particularly when you think of, of older games, um, like I'm a big fan of the, the Dragon Age um, series. One of the things that, <laughs> that I think is lampooned so much about Dragon Age 2 is when you're in the city... The entire, like every street looks exactly the same to the point that well, the word that you guys use specifically was player fatigue. Um, the point by which you're in a space and you're just kind of tired of, of being in that space. You kind of get worn out with it. 
Yeah, I think the goal with every space that we made is basically like, what can we do to make this space different from anything else you've played? Sometimes it's something small, sometimes it's something big. Depends on how much time you have. Um, Fallout 4, talking about Fallout 4, was was just a massive commercial success. Huge. Um, How did the art direction with that game um, change from, from the look and feel of Fallout 3, where Fallout 3... The palette was very green and drab, um, um, lots of grays and, and browns and greens and everything. Um, whereas Fallout 4 had such a different, more vibrant, almost um, futuristic technicolor kind of feel to it. Yeah, I think the goal was to make sure it was felt like something completely different. And also back then on Fallout 3, we couldn't even do shadows. That wasn't a thing. <laughs> So you kind of had to really rely on just like these incredibly noisy textures, that extreme color grading to get something that like looked nice, but we had the freedom to not do that. So we wanted to like diverge from that as much as possible. And the game that people saw that we shipped is not even as extreme as it was at first. Like at first, when we were doing early experiments and it was like just me and Eastvon working on the game, I was doing Diamond City, but it looked almost like TF2. It, we went swung super far where it was like incredibly clean and we ended up you know a little bit in the middle there but that's kind of where we started and we had those key like the red and the blue from day one almost to make it super distinct that's interesting it's yeah. like a kind of like a more poppy poppy vibe with that that i mean that would be a pretty cool art style for anything we talked about this i, I think on a, on a fallout hub but was the like so, like, obviously, you think about Fallout 3, you think green. When you think about Fallout New Vegas, you think orange. Like, was that kind of, like, filtering because of, like, Breaking Bad and all of these, like, big shows coming out that, that had, the, it was like, that filtering's kind of cool. Was that part of it, or was that just, like, the limitations of, of the engine or the art? Like, what was, what was the vibe then? This it's, is a vibe check. That's what the kids say. This is a vibe check. Yeah, it was kind of both, because like, I know Eastvon really liked that kind of extreme color grading, and there's some sci-fi movies that he liked that had that kind of look, but it was also the tech. Like, the way you could color grade in Fallout 3 at that time was you could just take a color and wash it over the whole screen, and that was it. Later, on like Fallout 4, we could do what was called like a color lookup table, so basically you could change any color to anything else to adjust. Like, I want the shadows to be more blue, not the whole thing, just the shadows shift them in that way it's more like filmic color grading for real so that let us do a lot more mm. also mm. that's interesting yeah you're uh you're known really with all of these games for the lighting that you do um you're kind of like the the king of god rays um how uh so the fallout the king of god the rays king... himself gracing us with his presence the phoenix and the king of god rays um how did uh the lighting system uh, that you developed, how how did that process occur? Um, was it something that you, you just had been experimenting with over time or it was something that you consciously decided with the team, okay, we need to we need to create a new lighting system and this is why? Yeah, that was a big push on 76 that I fought for pretty hard and took a ton of time to do, but it was super important to me and I think it makes a really big difference having like each room is reflecting its own actual room. Like, if you go back and look at Fallout 4, look at any reflection. It's like some city street or something. You're like, I'm not even on a city street. Like, I'm in the woods. What's going on? So it makes things a lot more realistic, but also makes it look better, and it's faster to do it that way. 
Yeah, I remember the lighting in 76 after Wastelanders was just stunning. Um, particularly, you notice it in certain spaces. Um, I've grown to have a real appreciation for the mire. When it's night and it's foggy and you've got the moon and that entire space is just so beautiful with the the light rays coming through the trees. And I love that space. I'm glad you like that space. There's actually something kind of cool about that space that we didn't end up shipping because it didn't actually run. But you know all those little glowing mushrooms that are in there? At one point I was going through the entire mire and making every single one of those glow. And so you had all this like yellow light on everything. Looked awesome, but turns out that's like thousands, thousands of lights all over the place. You like zoom out, you're like, okay, this is not gonna run. That would have been amazing. But you do have that kind of feel when you're down in the sundew groves. Like when you're in the mm-hmm. Sundew Groves, where those those that area looks so otherworldly in comparison to everything else. Where uh, I remember we were talking on Twitter that it's almost like um, it's Chernobyl esque, where everything just has accelerated growth. Um, you have these weird funky mutations, um, and then the Sundew just kind of spits out all those orange pom poms of I don't know what they're like. For that perfect is. for photos. It is, yeah. There's a lot of camp builders in our group that that love building there just because when you're there, it keeps shooting those things out. <laughs> so it just looks yeah. good to photograph. And those things work really well with it. Another change we did with the lighting also is all of the trees and those sundews are behind the scenes. They're actually this giant cube that filters the light. So as you said it like this is pink and it's like 50% transparent or something. So the light from the sun will come through and then become pink. And then also bounce that around, so it sort of fills the forest and everything with more color. That that's awesome. Being a, it's kind of exaggerated; like real life doesn't happen to that level. But I always liked the look of that kind of thing. Yeah, I love those spaces. I, wonder, I, I would be curious, like if there was like a geotagging feature for like uh, for like screenshots or, or for the photo mode in Fallout seventy six, and like how many of them would be from the Sundrew Cove? Because that a lot of the like photos that I see on Twitter or whatever. Are all from there with the you know the spores and everything coming off the um, sundew, like I, I'm yeah, I'm curious what the exist. what the uh, the spatial element of that would be. Yeah, we have like heat maps. Yes, that you can see exactly where everyone goes, where they take their pictures and stuff like that. So it was where everybody died and from what. So all that stuff is awesome to look at. Where all the nukes are launched, which is kind of obvious where all those go. Yeah. And it's right, changed yeah. over time too. I still miss mm-hmm. there are there are things that I miss about year one that players that came to the game now won't experience, which is you know in those early days of the game where you didn't know if you were going to meet friend or foe, uh, or you know you're just wandering the wilderness, totally immersed in your character, and then you hear somebody eating potato chips. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a different feeling back then. It was completely different, and then you always you feel like you're constantly missing people. Um, whether it's the Mistress of Mystery Quest or you feel like you're you're you just miss people being alive and it's such a there's such a forlorn emptiness that just we don't have in the game anymore now that is we have PCs, but it was it was an interesting year, that year one. Yeah, I think adding NPCs was a good thing, but it also I thought was kind of an interesting experiment, different tone. Yeah, because when you think too about uh, I 
I'd never played an online game at all, but I've I've been in love with with Fallout and and all of Bethesda's games, uh, the Elder Scrolls series, Skyrim, um, ever since then. But um, when you when I thought about playing online, my first impression was: Is this going to be like Call of Duty? And is a twelve year old going to like say racial epithets at me? Uh, is that what my experience is going to be? But I figured, what the hell? I'd I'd try it out, go for it. Um, and considering everything um, of, what, of what the game was or maybe it didn't meet some people's expectations I think there's there's for a large portion of people it was such a sandbox that it garnered elements of the community to come together in ways that they never have before um, in that we and I remember Todd talking about it in E3, and it, it left a lasting impression on me where he said that this is your opportunity to be an NPC, where we're giving you a world where you can tell your own stories. And I think a lot of people really took that to heart when you see all of these role-playing communities and machinimas and podcasts and all of this this wacky stuff come up. Um, I And this wasn't a, a question that I thought of beforehand, but... Um, when you put a lot of work, um, because I'm in a, a creative field too, and sometimes you work on something that you put so much of yourself into, and it can be hard to listen to people just trash it um, when you know you feel good about it. I can only imagine how that must have felt for you guys in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty intense, I would say. It's like yeah. being the villains of the internet for a while. But at the same time sort of used to it because it's it's always been that way with Bethesda games to some extent where even though it's like everyone's playing Skyrim and stuff but then there's like this really vocal minority just yelling at the top of their lungs on the internet this is the worst thing ever and you're like well 20 million people disagree with you so I don't right. know and people get people it's get in their though. mindset and, and there's like a narrative that they that they make up then it's the same thing for like all uh, you know, like Sony games are for you know. Uh, all you know, Bungie with their games. It's like pe- people get a narrative in their head, and it's like there's like a, a you know, essentially the character limit of a tweet that keeps on like recycling in their heads, and then people just recycle it. And so yeah, it's like, it's like oh, lazy games have bugs, and it's like okay, right, right. And so, and that narrative can change. Like, I mean, you can look at, like, you know, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, like, throw shade, but, like, you can look at, like, cyberpunk and how that, like, media storm happened where it's, like, people really got an idea and then really started to, like, bring that out. It's it's not good. It's really not good for anybody. (laughs) Like, nobody wins. There's no winner in that game of internet hate. There's no, there's no winner. And it's sad, too, because, you know, you guys... I mean, you you clearly love Fallout, and you clearly love what you do, and it can be so hard in this day and age when, in so many different fandoms and mediums, there are these vast echo chambers um, where it becomes almost impossible <laughs> to kind of counter and say, "Well, you know what? Have you actually tried it?" As opposed to just listen to someone else's opinion. Did you go in and, and experience it for yourself? Or did you put yourself in the mindset to even try and, and give it an opportunity? It's, yeah, it's 
tough to convince people of that. But all the people making these games and movies and everything, all those people are trying. No one's like, I'm going to be lazy and do a shitty job. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. That's super rare. Maybe some people, but definitely not most. That's not how it happens. That would be that would be some like Andy Kaufman making a video game. Like that would, that would be some like out there, super weird. <laughs> I feel like Sasha Baron Cohen. That could be his next thing. I'm going to make the worst video game Maybe. of all time. <laughs> With the um, the no clip documentary, which I'm always I love watching those. Um, they talked about that Follow seventy six um, had really begun as a multiplayer concept for Fallout four. Um, that spun off and became 76, but it was more of a focus on PvP, way more than what we have now. Um, and that it was almost like a Rust-style game. We never saw that build. What was it like to to play that back then? Because I know a lot of the devs have talked about how much you guys enjoy being competitive, and even before the game launched, getting into PvP matches and stuff. Yeah, it was definitely different, but it was also frustrating for people in a lot of ways but i would do what i call asshole testing where i would do that on purpose and be like i'm gonna trash your camp over and over just to see how it breaks and to see how that feels as a game because you kind of have to do that you can't just be like i'm gonna play the perfect way and be nice you can't do that like if we did that did it that way we probably would have shifted that way and people would have been annoyed in the same way once the actual people start playing so it was very different why uh why Appalachia? Why did you guys pick West Virginia? So I fought pretty hard for that one and I think it's like the landscape and the variety of the things in it is just super interesting to me. To get like up on the mountains and have the forest and everything was a lot more compelling than like, hey, let's do yet another urban area with the surrounding suburbs and stuff like that. It was something new and I think it fit the theme of what that kind of game was a little bit better also. As opposed to, like, if we did it in Pennsylvania, like, that came up early on. But I think this worked better. Right. Yeah, West right. Virginia. And the cities in Pittsburgh, I mean, you got Philly and Pittsburgh, and those are those are two really big cities where, like, I mean, you know, Charleston, if you go there, it's like there was absolutely no sprawl because it's just mountains around it. So it's just, like, on a river. It's like, you know, the maximum. It's like 10 streets of, of city all in it. Very, it's a very long city. We're a very long city, but we're not very, it's not very big. There's still like, I mean, you can drive like five minutes and be in like complete wilderness. <laughs> there's kind of that element to it where I don't know, there's not that much sprawl in West Virginia, at least for, at least from my perspective. I mean, you get up there towards the, the panhandle in DC in that area, that could be a little different, but yeah, I, just, yeah. I think that's a new, different feel for it. Yeah, that that Nate road trip is is kind of uh famous. For re- I have questions. For I have you questions. getting out there and uh, scouting locations and everything, what was what was that like? And before we get into this, because Dave is going to have questions, in your new venture, please, for the love of God, chronicle things. Um, because I, I think a lot of us would have loved for like a behind-the-scenes like road trip with Nate. Like you release it after the game, so you don't spoil anything. But I think that would have been fascinating to see that that process of of going on location and scouting all of that. Well, now I don't have to vet anything, so I can do whatever. But, <laughs> yeah, that trip was a lot of fun. Yeah, 
And it was also really hard to do though, because everything is so spread out. So I had everything to the hour on be like, we have to do this tour and then drive to this place. Because otherwise you're not going to see anything and you're going to spend like six months doing it and still not see everything. Right. So imagine I'm your mom, right? And I'm asking you about your vacation. I'd like, I want to know, I, I want to know everything. Like where do you, how do you plan that kind of trip? Like, like where do you start? Do you start researching on the internet? Or are you like, okay, these are some of the top spots or like, oh, I heard from a friend about this. Uh, yeah, it was internet and books because some of the stuff is not actually on the internet. So I had lots of like weird things to see in West Virginia kind of books and stuff like that to find more stuff. And then I put it all into Google Earth and like had all these little pins and stuff to see then like what is then the ideal path to hit as much as possible and like this big circle to then come back eventually. That's how I And you have to cut some stuff, but we saw as much as we could in the time that we had. So how long did it take you, your tour, your tour, your grand tour? It's like you're, it's like you're, imagine you're going up the like Pacific Coast Highway or something, <laughs> you're hitting every wine. Like what, how long did that tour take you? I think we only had for the main trip, it was only like four days. So it was very fast, yeah. but I also <laughs> took extra trips sort of throughout the years. And even before we started on the game to go and visit various places, Hey, we're going to go skiing or something. Let's, let's go to West Virginia to do it. Were there any so locations kind of like first that with different? Oh, sorry. Oh, were there any locations that that you wanted to be in the game that just didn't make the cut based on the way that you kind of reshaped things? Yeah, like we weren't able to fit wheeling in. It's also a schedule thing. Like we could have fit it in the map and found a way to do it, but it's also like, do we have time to do it? Can we do it justice? So that's one that I think didn't. We didn't have the time to be able to really pull that one off. Right. I, I do have a report for you. Everyone loved what you did in West Virginia, except for the people that lived in Huntington and Wheeling. <laughs> everyone was uh, was irate. Um, every everyone sent sent um, hate thoughts. They were like, "Where where is Marshall? Where is Huntington? Where is the Great Brit- the tri state area?" Everyone in Wheeling is like, "The Panhandle, man. The Panhandle. What's the point?" Yeah, it's tough, but we, at the end of the day, had to be like, well, what are the urban places that we think we can fit and worked with the map and the schedule? So as much as I would have liked to put it all in, we weren't able to do that. I definitely (laughs) wanted to, but then they're like, well, you can't do everything in the whole state. What, uh, what's your personal favorite location? I think I like the top of the world. Because even though that's like a blend of real places and made up, I like having that element of sort of luxury vacation stuff also, because that was another important thing to have was all those different things like lumber yards and coal mines and stuff, but also nice places that people go on vacation, like White Spring and all these things like that. I think it adds, makes them feel more like a real place that way. Yeah, I when know. I was playing that, and they were talking, you all were talking about the NPCs coming back into the world. I was like, they gotta all, they gotta head to the top of the world because they have everything up there. They have all the stores, they have all the different, and it's just in a globe. You don't have to, they don't have to be out. They can just be in the little snow globe of people. It's gonna be so wonderful. I always thought of it as like a UFO or a thumbtack. <laughs> yeah, a few times when I saw that and then when I saw silo covers, I thought, is that a UFO? No. Is that a UFO? No. Oh. 
And I think eventually we may. So when, so when you were going and, and, and visiting places, what do you think? You know, you can't you can't pick favorites, but what's the most like? I guess like what blew your expectations away of a, of a place? Like you obviously, it's like oh, you can name a favorite, but what was like? I went to go see this, and my expectation really changed. The like coal mine tour in Beckley was really cool because it was really interesting hearing all the details firsthand from a miner of like how that stuff works and all the tales of the like the, you know, the what is it the widowmakers the stumps that fall through the tops of mines and kill people so, yeah lots of interesting details there um, year one versus and, and, and now I'm gonna give you oh sorry go ahead oh go ahead. Oh no, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you. You're here with a West Virginia born born and raised. Um, I'm, I'm from the. If you know the Hatfields and McCoys, Devil Ants married a person named Levisi Chafin, and that's my. If you if you go, you know, you turn it both he ways. He's extremely sides, proud so of his West Virginia What's heritage. What's your least favorite part about? I, I'm a born born and raised. Hell yeah! What is what do they say? Eat shit pit. That's what they say here. Um, uh, what was your least favorite? part about that trip what was the thing that you were like this is either really hokey or i feel uncomfortable hmm. i don't know if there was one that i disliked at it all was? Hmm. no like everything was pretty awesome i mean some are certainly less eventful than others like if you go out to cranberry bog it's like you're basically looking at grass like but <laughs> I, Still right. glad that we win because right. then you're like, wait. look, picture plant, zoom in, zoom in. Right, and, and so I did uh, one of my one of my like, I, what is it like a senior thesis project was on the cranberry bog about whether or not. Um, so it used to be a glacial formation, and it was whether or not um, flying squirrels, like the Virginia flying squirrel, like they have a team in Richmond that's like the baseball team. It's called like the flying squirrels or something like that. But they're mostly in Virginia now, and, and so they don't really live that much unless you're in like kind of in that mountainous area, like the, I guess, Blue Ridge Mountains area of, of uh, Virginia. But my whole research was around the Cranberry Bog. And so when I found out that there was like a whole area in Fallout 76 that I'd spent, I'd spent like a year of my life devoting research to, and it's going to be a gigantic video game area. I was like, are you kidding me? Did they make this for me? Did they, did they, did they were they stalking me the whole time and knew exactly what I wanted? It was wild because it's so small when you go like when you actually go to the cranberry bog it's like okay there's this little walkway and like there's a nice view in the front where you get the mountains you can see different stuff but it's like if you look really closely there's the pitcher plant and there's just a few sundew because the pitcher plants are actually invasive and are killing all the sundew yeah i mean that place was too cool to not sort of take a little bit of liberty with it and make it something more instead Mm -hmm. of just like just a location you uh, you'd made a throwaway comment in your Twitter feed that you were the Grafton monster in the trailer. W- what? So trying to take trailers of AI in a game is like a total nightmare because you're like, no, no, don't don't walk that way. Come back in frame. Come back in frame. So the, the trick is we use these special developer commands, and you can then become a creature so on one hand i'm pushing the camera forward but on the other i'm walking forward with the grafton monster to get like the perfect shot and then if it's bad walk right back get in place okay take two (laughs) that's awesome i wish we could do that 
What's the cheat code for that? You, you know, now that we have you out of out of the Bethesda graphs, what's the cheat code? Sure, all that stuff is cold from the real builds. <laughs> <laughs> There's mods, Dave. Mods eventually will come. <laughs> That is something okay, I always yeah, wanted I'm to put a, I'm in. I'm on the PlayStation. That would be amazing. Could you imagine, like, I would love to play as the Mothman. I would just mess with people. Just, like, like peek out from behind their house or something. Yeah, I had this idea of, like, putting a gun in the game that would let you then take over any creature. We never did it, obviously. But what if you're, like, spying on someone's camp as, like, a rad stag? Like, don't mind me. That would be kind of awesome. It's like a full, like you're talking about a full druid build, and I am so here yeah. for it. I am so here for it. End game builds. Yeah, there was also talk of like, what if you could become a Wendigo if you ate too many people? These are great ideas. I mean, we covered that on the podcast. Let me tell you, if I'm Mr. Moneybags, if I'm like, you know, Mr. Making That Money, I'm like, yeah, there you go. Put that on the table. That's good. Invest. The Sickle Man. Where did that come from? That is, that is, I mean, that's, that spawned like a whole arc in our story. Um, and I think that's one of everyone's favorite Easter eggs. Everybody takes pictures there and there's all kinds of threads and conjecture. And Yeah, I definitely enjoyed seeing all that stuff because Sickle Man was this series of stories I did in like fifth grade. <laughs> Because I would write all these like ghost and horror stories and stuff like that, and teachers are like, "What are you writing? This stuff is weird." And they like called my parents. They're like, "We're worried about it." But you know, I stuck with it and kept making monsters, and so I just had to kind of put it in. At one point, that was like the first cabin that I ever put in the game too. But then I went back at one point and just added that. Yeah, I love that it like, changed let, from let the sickle. Guess. The sickle man uh, was here to is here. <laughs> that was such a troll move. Yeah, I just thought it would be funny one day. I was like, well, you know, let's leave it open. Maybe it will be around. I think I spent, Nate, I think I spent like a whole Saturday trying to like crack that code. And oh. I spent a lot of time on that. I like, I, I literally, I Nate just ruined your world. It's called the Telltale Lilac Bush. It's 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 a, a, oh, wow. a horror story book from West Virginia that has a lot of story. And it like I was reading about this this one farmer that used a sickle that cut off the heads of people. And I was like, okay, if he's cutting off the heads of people, where was this? And it turns out to be it was on the the Grafted River. And I was like, oh, it's on the Grafted River. Oh, does that mean it's really so? It's like the Grafton Monsters headless, and I like I, imagine me with the pin boards, right? That's me. I'm like putting everything up, trying to figure out everything. So it's good. Now we have the real answer. I can put the books down. I can put the. I can you, put the. Suffice you know, to say, you lived in Dave's head away. for a while. <laughs> I think fifth grade me would be very amused by this. <laughs> you imagine parent-teacher conferences with the perky piles like uh, your son's writing stories about a serial killer and then a little while uh, your son's doing uh, projects on nuclear weapons and blast radiuses we have some concerns pretty much <laughs> um, hey you're inspiring the next generation of kids with concerns <laughs> um, yeah stick with it make cool stuff one thing I want yeah. to mention here in chat, uh, because we are we're winding down. Don't forget to hit exclamation point Perky Pile, or sorry, exclamation point Perky, uh, to enter into our giveaway for She Is Art Prints. We're going to have two of them to give away, and uh, I'm going to be doing a drawing for those. Uh, not sorry, not exclamation point. It's a hashtag Perky. My bad. 
Um, speaking of Easter eggs, um, from your late cat that was in the paintings to the developers' faces as the busts, uh, your face is one of the busts that's in the game that was kind of fun to figure out. Um, which one is your favorite uh, Easter egg that you dropped in? Well, I think there's one that a lot of people don't know what it means still, and it's the Astro Panda at the top of Seneca Rocks. And Yes. So that one is like a nickname that my wife and I have for our family because when we first started dating, it was around Halloween, and she was like dressed as a panda and I was an astronaut, so we combined that. <laughs> that's awesome. And also, that's one that I changed over time because like, it has Rowan and Seneca under that, which is my daughter's name. And Seneca is named after Seneca Rocks. You've broken Dave. Dave is broken now. Dave. That's really sweet. That's really kind. I, I love that. That's so nice. But they're also... You, you, you made up for the Sickle Man stuff with that. I mean, that's just so nice. I can't not like you, you know? There are whole Reddit threads going on about those those words and if it ties into the Standing Stones and like... <laughs> and Nate's just sitting here back like, yeah, you know, it's my family. That's awesome. Yeah, you'll find messages like that every once in a while through the game. It'll be like, Danny was here or something like that. It's Because we have individual letters, so you can just spell whatever you want and just kind of sneak it in the game. And that's my handwriting, by the way. So it's really weird to see these messages every once in a while. I'll be like, in my handwriting, but someone else wrote it. <laughs> that's awesome. Who is Marv? <laughs> so Marv was this guy in QA would take that Foshnock mask, the one with like the long nose, and he would always wear that. But then he would take all these screenshots and just sort of sneak them into there. So it'd be like, find Marv in the picture. <laughs> and he also even he made the real mask once for like a Halloween party at the office. That was pretty awesome. Did you, um, do you, do you now, or did you still, did you play in public worlds? It must've been a little surreal to, to like be in world with players and kind of observe them. <laughs> like, yeah, it was just... fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was super nice, though. Like, no one would know who I am. I was just running around and would dress up as Santa and give people free stuff to see what people are up to. Interesting seeing everyone enjoy it. Well, it's funny. It's funny that you're talking about the masks, and it's like now it's like those masks are so involved in the game. They're also involved in in the actual Fosnot in West Virginia. So now when you go to some of these huts and see the masks from previous years, they have saved some of the masks that people made that are replicas of the Fallout 76 masks, and they're up on the shelves. That's so it's like, so great. It, 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 you know, life imitates art, art imitates life. Like, it's, it, it's crazy. That kind of stuff is absolutely wild to see. Helvetia is so cool. I love going to that place. You know, it's, it's interesting, too. Um, places that are, that, that become where a Fallout game is set, whether it's Fallout 4 or now Fallout 76, um, they become tourist destinations. Like, players want to go there to see the same locations in-game. And particularly with Helvetia, I don't think a lot of people know this, that that town really struggles throughout the year um, and really, really relies on tourism. Um, Particularly last year with everything shut down. Um, Most recently, I'd seen pictures online Players got together and went around painting the houses in the town. Um, when you see stuff like that, it's just, it's amazing how much the games um, bring people together or get them to appreciate things or go places. That's kind of neat. 
Yeah, I think it's a good way to introduce people to it because, you know, I'd never heard of the place until I started really doing research, so I'm glad more people have heard of it now. What are you most proud of with 76? I think I would just broadly go with, like, the world. Like, I just love the way everything's laid out and how much variety there is because it was really nice since we had so much stuff from Fallout 4 that you can spend a lot more time than doing stuff that's different instead of, like, we need to do a house and a building be like no let's do more unique extreme stuff i don't think we could have done nearly as much if we didn't have that sort of basis to build on i think it's i think it's probably my it's my favorite world i mean i obviously i'm like I'm talking like did you know that dave's from west virginia i people don't know or already know this <laughs> but as far as like a design level like it is it is like country theme park like it, it takes a lot of like what i liked about like nuka world where it's like here's the ride here here's the ride here and the way that map is presented with all this like there's no like realistic map it's all like oh there's this little drawing over here of this thing if i go over there i might be able to find like a teapot or something like that and then when you go you're like oh okay this and so things start like connecting in your mind and it's almost like you're sightseeing like you have this like basic map of where everything is and you're at Disney World and you're like I want to go you know ride the Nuka-Cola plant ride like that mindset it, it's so much fun to play an open world game like that I think yeah I mean that was definitely the goal with it and we spent so long on that map but it was so important I think to how the game plays instead of just like the grid with the green more typical Fallout style like that's one that I fought for I always wanted to be like you have a paper map yeah I love that map so now, just perky games. You're striking out on your own uh, as an independent game developer. Tell us about that decision and, and what you're going to be doing next, because we've we've been patiently waiting, and you were you were seriously trolling us with this announcement for the okay. past week. I figured I might as well have some fun with it. People. I love how many people are like, "Oh, he's working on Starfield," and I'm like, "No, no, he." He's quit his job. Like He's going to do one thing. It won't be. Yes. It's not Fallout Five. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time, and I guess it just got to that point where it's like I've made, I'd say enough Bethesda games at this point that I wanted to try something new, and I knew if I didn't do it, I'd eventually just like regret it forever. So tools are awesome these days, and I thought it was a great time to do it. Like I haven't said exactly what I'm doing for the game that I'm building but I'm going to be building it with like Unreal 5 and that engine is amazing. And they're, it's just so powerful. Excited to see what I can build with that. Yeah. I've, and, I've all, like, and they just came out with that, right? It's, that's like pretty, pretty new for, for, for um, consumers, right? It's beautiful. Yeah. It's still early access. So I'm sure there will be rough edges and stuff, but I'm looking forward to seeing how they sort stuff out, but it's like perfect timing for me, really. Do you want to say what genre the game could possibly be? Well, I'm, I can say it's probably going to be a first-person game because I've just been doing those for so long, and I just love the immersiveness of first-person games. And I would say it's probably going to be horror-adjacent. Not a horror game, but like kind of the way 76 has like elements of that. So that's yeah. stuff that I've always liked. But also probably lots Everybody of interesting things little, to explore. be a little spooky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't, I can't. So what are some... so? We talked about Fallout a bunch, but what are some like 
games that have uh, have inspired you outside of that series that you're like okay like obviously you made you made a decision to to do the independent development it's like what stuff have you played you're like oh that's a really great idea or like oh that mechanic really inspired me the big one i'd point to is subnautica actually like that i would put even in like my top games of all time i think that game is just absolutely amazing in the way there's so much mystery in that game and just the way everything is unveiled slowly over time and like that they don't give you a map or anything you just kind of have to like get a sense of the world and set up your own little markers for where things are it's fascinating what are you I'm th- playing the second one right now and it's great it's fantastic i love that series i was waiting for my new computer to come before i started it's like shipping soon do you predominantly play on pc or console I'd say it's like a 50-50 for me. It's just really wherever the games are. I'm definitely not one or the other. What do you think your legacy is with all of the work that you did with Bethesda? Probably going to be Skyrim. Because I bet when I'm like 80 or 90, they'll be like, put out another version of Skyrim. Everyone's still (laughs) playing it. Skyrim is now going to be available for your wallet. You know, you just like plug it into the back of your neck at that point. Yeah, go right in VR. Well, for art, I mean, that's the that's the game that famously knows like everywhere a painting, like everywhere you look, it's a painting. So, I mean, you can't you can't pick a worse game, you know. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. it's been like ten years now. I should probably go back and play it. I was maybe going to try it out in VR and see how that is. VR is yeah. Especially now that VR is like in a better state, in my opinion. Like, don't have to put up little light boxes and things like that. You can just it works wirelessly. That's pretty cool. I started replaying Skyrim recently, and it it reminded me again how breathtakingly beautiful that world is, and it's just a joy to wander around in. Like that whole world space is just absolutely stunning. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to work on. Do you have a, an ethos or philosophy when it comes to the games that you've made and the games that you will make now on your own? I think it's ultimately that I just try to make a game that I would like to play. And I think that's kind of how Bethesda games worked, period. Like, even though a lot of games are more like that now, even back then, it was not really like other games and sort of kickstarted the whole open world thing. Because back then, people would be like, yeah, you're, why would you do that? That's maybe pretty extreme but those are what we wanted to play, and we tried as much as we could to make everything interesting in them. And even though it's very different from like the linear approach where everything is like hyper-polished, like the amount of stuff we were able to do and the amount of time you can then spend in it, super interesting to me. So I think that's my goal going forward, is just make something that I think is interesting, and hopefully the players follow. Yeah, we, uh, we're, we're on board with, with whatever you're going to be doing next, and uh, we nice. really we can't wait to see it. Um, that was all of the, the questions that, that we had here for you. Is there, uh, is there anything you wanted to say? We've got uh, a whole bunch of people here in chat who've been, who've been chatting it up and sharing some love for you. Yeah, just thanks for playing all the games throughout the years, and hopefully I can keep making things that everybody still likes. So looking forward to it.
How well do you know your video game lovers? Have you ever wondered how your video game bays stack up against all the other delectable digital dates? I'm Genesis, the girl whose motto in life is love, laugh, tequila. And on Two Girls, One Ship, we analyze, rate, and review all that the world of video game romances has to offer. And I'm Vervada, the hopeless romantic cat lady and lifelong gamer. But you should know that our podcast centers on character and romance analysis and doesn't shy away from exploring the fun of physical connection. Or from the deep emotional connections built between two characters, using specific in-game dialogue, and the overall narrative journey. So join the two girls, one ship, shipsters, and remember... Beauty is in the eye of the controller.